Hi, I'm Bill Mitchell, host of When Dating Hurts. Two years ago, I launched my Dating Violence podcast. Back then, I knew very little about recording, editing, or uploading to a hosting platform. Frankly, I didn't know what a hosting platform meant. When recording episodes, I needed it to be easy for me and my guests. You see, I was capturing highly emotional personal stories, and I couldn't have guests fiddling around, clicking buttons, starting and stopping over and over again. I launched with Zencaster, and I stayed with them. The reason is, it's just so darn easy. And today's Zencaster lets you record with high-quality audio and video. You can edit and distribute, too, all in one place. No more bouncing around from one platform to another to create your podcast. So, if you're interested, go to Zencaster.com pricing and use my code, when dating hurts, all one word, and you'll get 30% off your first three months of Zencaster Professional. I want you to have the same experiences I do for all my podcasting and content needs. Isn't it time to tell your story? I'm Bill Mitchell, and this is When Dating Hurts a podcast dedicated to my daughter, Kristen, and all women taken from us before their time by the epidemic known as dating violence. I will speak with authorities in domestic violence, law enforcement professionals, families of victims and survivors, and survivors themselves. Today, we welcome Janae, who is a nurse practitioner in Utah, who treats survivors of domestic violence. She's in the business of helping them understand the trauma they've gone through, how it affects their brains, and other different survivor responses. So welcome to the When Dating Hurts podcast, Janae. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. It seems like the best place to start is to kind of roll time back a little bit on your calendar and give me a sense of what you were doing just before you met the person who made your life kind of miserable. You know, were, yeah. were you in high school or college or beyond that? And what was going on? So I actually was a Mormon missionary once upon a time. And I was in California. So you get called to serve in a certain area for a year and a half. And I got my mission call to California, Bakersfield. And when I was a missionary in this area, I had met my husband's family. and I knew them very well because I'd been in this area for about six months. So I was very close with them. And it was actually his mother who was like, I want you to marry my son when you go home. And when I say home, I was going home to Utah to finish my, my schooling. Mm. So I had met him when I got home off my mission in Utah. And um, we had shared that same faith of Mormonism previously. But that's kind of where all things started was his mom was very influential in me meeting him, wanted me to marry him. So as soon as I got home from my mission, I, I started dating dating this guy. We'll call him Tony for the sake of this podcast. Sure. But yeah, we dated pretty quick right after I got home. Did you feel a little like you're, did you want to do this or is this something you felt like you were pushed into with the mother? Um, I actually wanted to, so give kind of a, a background here. They, they were Tongan or Polynesian culture. I loved that. When I was on my mission, I thought it was so fun. They were such a fun people. I really liked their culture at, at the beginning. 
Mm-hmm. You kind of learn some different things when you get married into it. But to me, that was really exciting because I was like, oh, this is fun. They're really very warm and welcoming and kind of like a party people. <laughs> oh, really? Um, so I didn't feel super pressured. I really liked and I loved his family while I was a missionary. I thought that they were awesome. So to me, it all kind of sounded like too good to be true. Like I was going to go home, marry this guy, and it was just going to be perfect. So Yeah, it's hard to beat that. I mean, you could really get... Yeah. You could really not just walk into that situation. You go running into that situation. Right. right. Yeah, exactly. And it wasn't... So we started dating pretty quick, and it was pretty early on when there were red flags. And of course, I ignored a lot of them. And a lot of it... I feel like a lot of the issues I had with ignoring my red flags in the beginning were religious-based. The Mormon faith is pretty, they really like you to get married and to have kids. And so that's kind of what they teach you when you're a missionary is you go home, you find your spouse, and you get married right away and you have you start having kids. And so that's my mindset. And so when I started dating him, there were a lot of things that were not appropriate, that were not okay. But in my head, I'm like, oh, I found this this perfect guy. He's Mormon like me, and it's going to just work out perfectly. But no such luck in, in that sense. So I guess you're thinking, I'm going to marry him anyway, so I guess we'll just kind of uh, you know, head to first base, second base, and third base, so to speak. Is that what you're saying? Right. Yeah. And so the Mormon culture, you you don't have premarital relations at all. And that was kind of our biggest hangup was we had had premarital relations and I felt really guilty for it. And so we actually eloped without anybody knowing because I felt so guilty about having these premarital relations with uh, him. I see. So nobody knew that we were actually married, but okay. we claimed we were still dating at the uh, time. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yes. And it's something you wanted to do. It wasn't like he had you in the headlock dragging you to see the minister or the... Correct. The, yeah. We went down to know, the courthouse. The officiate, the officiate or whatever they call that. Yes. Yes. Did, did you so get I married think, in the faith? Actually in the faith? We did later. So kind of how the Mormon culture works is you're supposed to get married in the temple. And the temple is kind of a way for you, they say, or they teach you that you can be married to your, your spouse for eternity. And when you don't get married in the temple, marriage is kind of just until death do you part. And so in my faith, my old faith, Mormonism, it was, you don't get married in the temple. When you die, you're not going to see your spouse. And oh. so, but you can't get married in the temple if you're having sex. So that's where it was a big conflict. Yes, of, well, I am not worthy to be married in the temple, but I also want to be married to my spouse for eternity. And so a lot of, I think, my my issue was I was a missionary. I was taught these things growing up. This was how it was. And I had broken the rules and I felt really guilty and God was going to punish me. And so I needed to do what was right. So we got married civilly in the courthouse where nobody knew because I didn't want to disappoint my family. Yeah. And we eventually had our wedding or our sealing, which was we went to the temple and got sealed. But that's where everyone thought we actually got married yes, was in the temple. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So up until that point, I, are things going fairly smoothly? You said there were already some red flags. So what are we talking about here? Yeah, there are some definite red flags. Now I'm, I'm going to say this, and this is a survivor's, or this is a 
a person's going through domestic violence brain was he only hit me one time while we mm-hmm. were dating. Obviously, red flag. But what had happened in that situation is because we were living together, his friend had come over. They were playing video games hours on end, which I did not realize how impactful that was going to be throughout my marriage. I wanted his friend to go home because they had been over there for hours. Yes. And when I went out there to tell him to leave, my ex-husband lost his cool, took me into the room, threw on the bed, suffocated me for a while, and Ooh. then blamed me. So this is where it all kind of started. If, if you ever talk to me like that in front of my friends again, I'm going to do this to you. And I was terrified. I had never had that happen to me before. Sure. But I don't know what to do. And I think that's where a lot of other survivors um, struggle is you don't really know what to do when it happens. It's very shocking. Yes. And in my head now, I'm, I'm the problem. I should not have talked to him in that way in front of his friends. I was wrong. I lost my patience. I should be more accepting of their video games and let him do whatever he wants. And that's where my brain really started retraining that I was the problem. There were other instances I caught him cheating on me. But again, I want to marry this person in the temple. I've already committed to them and he's from my mission. So yeah, there were other lot of red flags. He was not very nice to other people, Uh which I wish I would have picked up on quicker. Now, that's probably more specifically your friends he wasn't nice to, but his friends he was okay with. Would that be fair? Yes. Yes. He he did not like any of my friends or family. And what bothered me the most was, oh, your friend is so annoying. Oh, she's so stupid. I don't want you hanging out with her anymore because she's X, Y, and Z. Okay. And so it started becoming, I started isolating myself slowly from people because they were annoying. Not him. He was never the problem, but my friends were, were annoying. And so I shouldn't be associating myself with them because then he would say, you're acting like so-and-so. Stop acting like that person. Uh, and so it was that slow mental game that he would play with me constantly, always putting it back on me. I started believing that I really was the problem and sure. that, oh, my friends really are annoying. And it's, it, it wasn't, it's not like that. No, they're annoying and you're becoming annoying and everything's yes. pretty annoying. Yeah. Yes. I couldn't watch certain shows like the bachelorette because then I'd start acting like them. Oh, really? it's just, yeah. Okay. Those were like the red flags that now I recognize, but in the moment I did not. Now when he jumped you and he pins you down on the bed and then suffocates you a bit. Yeah. You're married at that point, right? You're married. Yes. We are secretly married, yeah. How far into being married do you would you say that is? Are, are we talking? Oh, a month. Okay, that's a, pretty early. A month into it. Pretty early yeah, for so that. We dated about a year before we got secretly married. So about a year into it. I've never been suffocated in my life. How do you remember that? What What was that like for you? Besides, um, obviously, you couldn't breathe. But I mean, what's that like? I mean, the, the, it must be terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. Oh, I I was terrified. Absolutely terrified. I just honestly remember. So anytime he abused me, I never looked at him. I always looked up at the ceiling. And so I just remember staring at the light, trying to like pull his hand off of my mouth. The abuse got much more severe as the years went on. But this initial time, I remember 
just trying to pull his hand off and staring at the ceiling. And he's obviously cussing me out on the bed. And it didn't, I'm not trying to defend it, but it didn't last that long the first time. And so after he got off of me, I just remember laying there frozen. And I didn't really have like, um, I didn't know really what to think. I just was scared. Yeah, it's and a then lot you to process. It's a lot yeah. to process. Super, super scary. And then you kind of come to, and then you just think, well, what the heck just happened? But then it goes to, oh, I shouldn't have done that. I'm so wrong. I'm so stupid. I'm so sorry. Because then I would start apologizing. And I started making lists of all the things that I had done wrong and why I shouldn't have done certain things. And so that became how I retrained my brain to to be a person in domestic violence relationship. On a kind of day-to-day basis, you know, after somebody's kind of done that, you know, that's yeah. that's a remarkable thing to have happened for anybody, really. Yeah. But you're living under the same roof in a daily way. I understand what you mean. You're making a list. You're looking at it like, wow, my approach is off. I have to, you know, reprogram my head about certain things. I have to walk gently and watch what I say more carefully, not to be annoying and like weird, like my friends, although they really weren't. But yeah. How do you feel about that other person during that? Can you say that, let's say you get married, you're in love, and then a month Mm -hmm. later, this happens. So a month after you were suffocated, are you as much in love or are you just like, are you living in a prison camp and you're not trying to, you're trying hard not to upset the guard? I mean, what, what, what is your relationship? What's that like? Uh, That's actually a really good question. I thought I was in love. I recognize it now as being very brainwashed in a way. So I would walk around on eggshells. Um, I thought I was in love because that's what I had fought so hard to get was him, but it was, it was walking on eggshells. It's, I don't want to upset this person. It's, Hey, what do you want to do? I, I don't care what we'll do, whatever you want to do. I will sacrifice everything. And that's how it became. And until obviously gradually it got so bad where I just hated even looking at him. But in the early days, it was very much. So I like the prison guard um, analogy. That's really what it was. Sure. But in my head, I thought that was love, and it was not at all. For you, love was don't be too noticeable. I guess is one way to put it. You know, because you're yeah. you're such a you're like such a puppet to this guy. You know, and you don't want to move unless he pulls the right string or whatever that is. So, so yeah. that was that was a big one. How much time before something else comes along that's either emotionally or physically remarkable for you to replay? The When Dating Hurts podcast is sponsored by Nom Nom. I'm a big advocate for better food for pets. When they eat healthier, they live healthier. And Nom Nom's food for dogs is full of fresh proteins a dog loves and the vitamins and nutrients they need to thrive. Nom Nom meals are pre-portioned for your dog's exact caloric needs. So it's the easiest way to take the guesswork out of feeding your dog the best. Just tell them about your pup, age, breed, weight, allergies, and protein preferences. Get fresh, prepackaged, totally nutritious meals delivered directly to your door for even less. Order Nom Nom today. Go to trynom.com slash when dating hurts and get 50% off your first order. 
plus free shipping. And Nom Nom comes with a money-back guarantee. That means if your dog doesn't love each meal, Nom Nom will refund your first order. Nom Nom is real good food for your dog. Head to trynom.com slash when dating hurts. Emotionally, it was probably daily. Just emotional of you're fat, you have cellulite, you have a huge nose, you look like a witch when you smile. It was constant emotional abuse just tearing me down, tearing me down constantly. I And I am a very huge gym addict. I love to lift weights. I always have been in very good shape. But in my head, I looked at myself as this giant, basically gob of cellulite walking around because that's how he always made me feel. So the emotional abuse just was never ending. And it was the mind games that were really, really difficult. Yes. But I, I must say during this time, this is this is important for later, the foreshadowing, I guess you could say, is my husband, my ex-husband at the time was in school. So we were both in school. I was obviously, my I was doing a prereqs for nursing school and he was at the local college here. He wanted to go to med school. So we had started about the same time and we were both very busy with that. And I was also working. So he did not work. He actually quit his job when we got married and I supported us. So I'm obviously working full-time, trying to get do school full-time. And then eventually I entered nursing school, which is super time-consuming. And I was still the one paying the bills. But I would say the emotional abuse just kept going and going. And then physically... I would say it was probably several months later when the next physical abuse took place. You'll have to excuse me. Some of my memories are a little bit foggy. Yes, it's understandable. Yes, some of it them I really... tr- tried to block out. But yes, his favorite, I guess, way of punishing me was always strangulation, suffocation. Oh. And... There were times I would say he had slapped me before he'd sit me on the toilet and slap me. And that was because I didn't do something proper. I can't even remember what it was for. There were times he drugged me out of the house and slammed me into brick walls. He then started getting very violent in cars because I couldn't go anywhere. For instance, we were driving to his home in California from Utah and I had worked a graveyard shift. This is when I was a nurse and I'd just gotten off work. And so I was trying to sleep in the back. He wanted me to drive. I had just worked my 13 hour shift. So I'm a little bit tired. And so we started getting in a fight about that because he had been at school all day, really tired from school. So we got in a huge fight. He pulled over at a gas station. I had locked the doors. So I was in the back seat and I kept locking the doors because he was trying to get into the back to me. And finally, he was able to get through and he strangled me in the back of the car at the gas pump at like one o'clock in the morning when there was no one around. And so I sat in the back the rest of the trip. We didn't speak a word to each other, but the violence was getting more and more severe and more and more frequent. But it was always my fault. He was stressed with school. He had to go. He was going to be a doctor someday. And so I needed to just let him do everything that he could. And I needed to basically shut up. So I paid for everything. I took care of the house. We actually had tenants in our house. And so I took care of all the tenants. I mowed the lawn. I paid for insurances, everything. I took care of everything in that household. Uh, Also, he was in school 
but yeah, the abuse started getting more and more severe and just more and more violent. We eventually got a dog, my little puppy. I actually trained him to be a cadaver dog. He's the cutest little guy. A cadaver dog. <laughs> yeah, he's trained to find dead people. Oh. And it was it was actually I listened to a lot of I listened to a lot of murder podcasts and this is very kind of interesting. While I was married to him, I really liked true crime. And I think it was a little bit a subconscious I think this might happen to me. Oh. Type of look thing. At that. Yeah, that's that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and so I loved it and so I was listening to a podcast and they talked about cadaver dog finding people who'd go missing. And I thought that was really cool. So I got my little dog and we worked with the police and I trained him. And what kind of a dog was it? He's a German shepherd. Okay. You said my little dog. Okay. <laughs> yeah. He's not, I guess he's not so little. He's huge. <laughs> there were a lot of things I, I look back on now and I feel like I did subconsciously to try and just try and survive. Yeah. So I got this dog, but he started being aggressive with my dog oh. and I did not like that. And then oh. he started telling me stories of what he used to do to animals when he was growing up. Kind of torture. So he would torture cats, frogs, snakes, just stories that would like huh. make my skin crawl. And it was probably another way to make you behave yourself. Yes. Very, very much so. Meaning you behave or uh, the dog's going to, what was your dog's name? His name's Jax. Okay. J-A-X? Yeah, I, I still got him. Jax? J-A-X? Okay. Yeah. He was my little pal there for for a couple of years. For two years, he was really all I had. And I didn't realize that until, you know. It's nice to have something or somebody in the house who actually looks forward to seeing you and treats you well. Mm-hmm. Yes. So I got my dog. He started becoming a little more aggressive with my dog than I liked. And that's when I started kind of fighting back more and started getting more and more tired of of his games and it was about this time that's when the abuse started getting really violent and it was mostly strangulation and then he would strangle me and suffocate me at the same time i tended to i i don't even i don't even know how i would get out of his grasp honestly but i would always go to the bathroom and hide and i'd bring my dog in with me but there was an instance we were trying to go camping with my family and my dog was in the back seat, and we had gotten in a fight about something, who knows what. Right, doesn't take much sometimes. Oh, it doesn't. Mm -hmm. And he was reversing out of the driveway, and he actually stopped in the middle of the driveway in the street and was crushing my trachea. Like I could feel it kind of getting mm -hmm. crushed. Mm -hmm. And um, I was trying to pull him off, and I was screaming, and I was screaming, and I just felt so bad because I remember looking back at my little puppy, and he was just paralyzed just staring out the window and he, my, this sounds so so silly but my dog actually has PTSD now from some of the things that he's seen and I never even uh, thought that that yeah. would be a thing but he really empathetic very empathetic to your situation very, your dog very yes. is your dog yeah. still with you still yeah, alive he's my he's my pal oh, good. Good. he loves his new home good <laughs> i imagine yeah. so it's nice to to be in a peaceful yes. place so when this is, okay, so at the point in your story where you are right now, how far are you along now since you were married to this We're about awful person? two and a half years post-wedding day, mm -hmm. or maybe even three years. So I'm, I'm a nurse at this point working. Um, my husband's still in school. My ex-husband's still in school. I would drop him off at nine o'clock in the morning. 
Um, he wouldn't show up until after midnight most days. I rarely saw him, but when I did see him, it was never good. I was never really happy to see him. And I didn't realize this at the time. I was never sleeping. I slept horribly. We actually slept in separate bedrooms at this point. He would walk, he would have to walk through my bedroom to get to the, to the main area. And any night he did that, I thought, uh, he's going to kill me with this pillow. He's going to put a gun to my head and shoot me because he had talked about getting gun silencers and shooting me. And uh, I just didn't realize how little I slept during those years <laughs> until I got out of it. And, and I was like, oh, I am actually really tired. I guess so. But that's when I started getting really fearful. He had gotten a gun. He would point the gun at me. This is when he started bringing knives into it, too. He would take the knives and drag them from one of my arms across, across my shoulders, across my throat. And then he would go down the other side. He would pretend to stab me in the stomach and push them really hard into my stomach. Um, he would come up from behind me with the knives to my throat and push them into my throat and say he was going to slit my throat. All of this he would joke about. So he was always laughing when he did it. Again, you don't really realize the fear that you are living with until you're out of the situation. Then you really go, excuse my language, oh shit. I was terrified that whole time. I was terrified of this guy. Yeah, I mean, it was terrifying just to listen to you tell this. So Yeah, he is. started started bringing in weapons. And he would point the gun at my dog and say he was going to kill my dog. And that's... Was it fully loaded at this point in time, by the way? Uh-huh. Yeah, the gun was fully loaded. That's tough. He did this weird thing every night where he would clean the gun, but he wouldn't clean it. He just liked to unload the chamber. He would take the... Um, oh my gosh, he'd take all of the... Was this a revolver or is this with a clip in it? It was a clip. Okay, okay. Is a clip. I got yeah. You. So it was a sig. He would he'd take the clip out. Yes. And every night it was like some weird ritual he would like to do. He would put the clip back in, he would load it, and then he would unload it, take the clip. Like he would do it multiple times and I don't know right. for whatever reason he was doing that. Almost like a nervous tick, except it makes a point in the house about uh who's boss and right. who's in peril if they don't toe the line properly. Right. Wow. Yeah, and I remember one night in particular, he had just done his ritual, and he actually reloaded it, and that's when he pointed it at me. And I was sitting on his bed, and I was like, and I, so of course I lost my mind. I was like, you don't ever point a gun at anyone sure, loaded or course. unloaded. We had taken a concealed class together too. Like, you know, gun safety 101. This is yes. just common sense. But he had pointed at me, and I, I, legitimately thought this was it i was gonna get yes. shot I, i'm done but he started laughing put the gun down and i went into my room and went to bed but he would play video games till probably five or six in the morning and anytime i got mad at the noise from him laughing he would get super upset with me and his excuse was well i'm at school all day i need to decompress when i get home and video games is how i decompress and so of course I'm the horrible wife. How dare I say these things? He's trying to decompress, whatever. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I started getting really, really tired of this. And the last time he ever abused me was probably the most horrific night. I was doing my charts 
at home. I, I was doing home health care. So I was, came home, was doing all my charting and he had gotten home early from school. He had said something to me. We got in a fight again and I stood up to leave and he shoved me into the wall. And am I allowed to swear on this? Okay. <laughs> I yes, don't know are. the rules. Yes, of course it's then, well, where the fuck are you going? I was like, I'm leaving. Just like, get out of my way. He grabs me, he throws me onto the couch, and he starts strangling me and suffocating me again. But this time, he was laughing in my face. And I just, I had wrapped my leg around his back, and I was kicking the hell out of him. And I was just trying so hard to get him off of me. Uh, I was trying to scream, but you can't, because I had tenants right upstairs. So I was like, if I scream, they'll hear me. Hopefully, I can get some help. Yes. And for whatever reason, God took this massive man off of me and I ran into the other bathroom. I had locked myself in there. I took pictures because unfortunately I did not document much of the abuse throughout the years, which my biggest piece of advice for other survivors out there is document, document, document everything. Yes. So I went to the bathroom, took pictures of my face, my throat had fingerprints on it. You could see. And that's when I knew... I had to get out or I was going to be freaking dead. And so it was about, it was that time on, I did not talk to him. So I left about two weeks later. It's hard when you leave. It's a very weird feeling because you know you have to get out, but it's like your whole life is shambles. You're embarrassed. You're bailing out, but right. you don't know where you're going to land. Right. Let's face it. That's why a lot of people hang around because... It's awful, mm -hmm. but it's the world they know. And it is. And that's something I've really learned being out is I was addicted to the cycle of the emotion. And it's because you become so accustomed to the emotion, you stay for it. And that's what I did not realize. But I had just gotten so tired of fighting all the time. I was never happy. I was always angry. And so it took me about two weeks to kind of figure out like what I wanted to do is this did I really want to leave did I, I had not told a single soul what had been going on for all those years I was curious about that if you had shared no. with friends or family what was going on so you did, you kept it all to yourself kept it all to myself I had distanced yeah. myself from a lot of friends because he hated all of them anytime I talked to my family mm -hmm. I was on a walk outside I could not talk to them in the house or in the car because I was annoying when I was talking to them according to him and so everything just became a fight. Right. So I would talk to my family outside and I just, I was so embarrassed because I'd fought so hard for this guy. And now look at what happened. Yes. It just, it was horrible. And so one night I just decided to leave. I actually, it was kind of on a whim. I just, I had finished my last patient of the night and I was like, I don't want to go home. I can't go home. It made me sick to think about going back to that place. And so I went home. And he was actually there, which if you remember, he's in school. And so he was never there. But that night he was right. there. And I was like, oh, fuck. Like, what am I going to do? So I walk in. And, and your dog's there too, right? Isn't your dog still there? Mm -hmm, my dog's there. So I walk in and I had actually caught him masturbating to someone online. Oh. <laughs> and it was 
So there's another living person on the other side of the computer. Yeah. You mean who he's? Yeah, and he's so stupid. I, we okay. had a glass door, and so when I was walking down the stairs, I could see him. And I, so I walk in the door and he hurry and slammed his computer. Like I didn't even see what just was going on. <laughs> uh, Not very well, bright. Yeah. Um, that's, so that's the, the comic relief in this story. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and he oh. had cheated on me probably five or six times in the marriage that I found. And that was, so who knows who this girl was, but yeah, that was, that was probably a light version compared to yes. the rest of it. So, Yes. So I walk in, I have to play cool. I have to act like everything's kind of okay. So I kind of just walk around and then I tell him a lie. I say, I have to go actually to one more patient. I just came home to grab something. So I go into the bathroom and I'm trying to plan out what I'm going to take or how I'm going to leave. So I actually left. I sat in my car for a while. Like I drove somewhere, sat in my car. And then I'm like, I got to go home and get like at least a change of clothes so I can go to work tomorrow. So I go home and he actually has locked himself into his bedroom. And I was like, Oh my gosh, this is it. So I grab my toothbrush. I grab one change of clothes. I could not take my dog because I was going to a hotel oh, and I gee. went to a hotel. I shut off my location. I shut off my credit cards because again, I'm the one paying for everything and I'm tired of paying for all of his stuff. So I stayed in a hotel for two nights and then I got an Airbnb because I, I went and got my dog. So I went to the house when he was at school, grabbed my dog, grabbed more clothes and stuff. And I stayed at this Airbnb for about a week. He texted me one time and all it said was, where you, you know, he's too lazy to even text a full sentence because <laughs> that's really hard. Uh, but it was that, yeah, it was that night that I just, I'm so over this and done. Did you ever get the opportunity to go get the rest of your stuff? I guess you did eventually. Yes. So that whole week I was staying in Airbnb. I was looking for apartments, apartments, apartments. I finally found one. I texted my ex-husband. I said, I'm moving out Monday at 10 a.m. I need you to be gone from the house. I drove down to my parents the weekend before the Monday. and. That was, excuse me, I get a little emotional. That was probably one of the hardest conversations I had. Now you're really going to, you're going to dump it all out of the box now, right? With mom and dad. Yeah. So I show up, I say, hey, I need to talk to you guys. And um, obviously I'm alone, so I know something's wrong. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. I just said, I'm leaving Tony. Yes. And I'm leaving now and I'm not going back but I need your help getting me out. And they asked why. And so I had to tell him that he was um, yeah. abusing me. Yes. That whole time. And their reaction was much like any parent, pretty hysterical. Oh. But I just said, listen, I know, I know this is a lot, but I, I, I don't need this reaction right now. I just, I'm kind of in fight or flight. I just need to get out and I need to be safe first. Yes. And so they were awesome. They drove up that Monday with their truck. And I actually had a couple of friends that came. We were all armed, loaded, ready to go. I had my gun. My dad had his gun. <laughs> I was ready for a fight. You had? Really? Yeah, I, I did not think it was going to go well. So we all had you our... Had, you brought guns. Oh, my oh, goodness yeah. gracious. Oh, 
I'm always packing now because <laughs> I just, yeah, oh. I just did not because he has a gun, and so I knew. Sure, I knew I he mean, had his gun. It wouldn't take much house. for him to go for that. You know, he's gonna. Yeah. He's gonna put things put things right according to what he thinks, what Tony thinks. This ends part one of two parts with Janae. Be looking for part two, the final episode with Janae, where getting away from someone like Tony brought the possibility of deadly violence. Thanks to my guests for offering their stories on the When Dating Hurts podcast. This is your platform where victims, survivors, and others who have experience with domestic violence can freely add what they have witnessed. Through these stories, although challenging to listen to, we underscore the prevalence and horrific behavior of abusers over their targets and victims. With knowledge comes enlightenment and empowerment. If you feel your story should be included on this podcast, please email me at billmitchell at whendatinghurts.com. That's billmitchell at whendatinghurts.com. Thank you.